This is Macro Horizons, episode 26, Yield Cap Challenge, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 8th. As we're tempted to join the thousands of worldwide webbers attempting to unscrew a bottle cap by channeling Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee, we're reminded that 15 minutes of fame might be enticing, but infamy lasts much, much longer. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, at least for me, I'm getting increasingly comfortable with the idea of tens below 2%. What about you? Well, we're very clearly back to the trading range that we spent the second half of 2016 in. And to be fair, that's very consistent with what we have learned over the course of the last two years. The aspirations of reflation have come and gone. The market has conceded we're in a low inflation environment for the foreseeable future, where the Fed was expected to try to push policy rates as high as 4%. The reality is that 2.4 might be the upper bound of effective Fed funds this cycle. In fact, with that assumption, any time we see a more significant backup in Treasury rates, there will be a significant amount of buying interest. In addition, one of the big takeaways that we've been focused on over the course of the last several months is that supply doesn't matter in the Treasury market the way it does in traditional asset markets. And as a result, 10 and 30 year yields are set simply as a function of global growth and inflation expectations. In that context, it's not surprising to see with core CPI trending where it is and inflation expectations at the risk of being unmoored toward the downside that we have a Fed on the precipice of cutting for the first time in this cycle. There's been a great deal of discussion around whether or not it's a 25 or 50 basis point rate cut. At the end of the day, it's probably a moot point. While the market is priced in 25 basis points, the assumption is one is not going to be enough. The Fed will ultimately have to do at least another 25 basis point rate cut. And even that assumes that the global economy turns a corner for the positive, inflation picks up in the second half of the year, and the Fed comes out of this episode looking like monetary policy geniuses. The flip side is that the trajectory of the real economy has already turned and turned in such a way that even a coordinated or coincident global easing campaign isn't going to be enough to avoid at least a technical recession, i.e. two quarters of slightly negative real GDP. While we don't think that is 2019 story, it is increasingly looking as though it might be an early 2020 event and not a transition that finds its origins in the domestic economy. 
In terms of the outright yield levels that we see in the Treasury market at this moment, really not that surprising to see us returning to a period that saw 10-year yields actually reach the record low of 1.32%. I wouldn't be surprised to see a new record set this cycle. Again, not this year, but 2020 and beyond, once it becomes abundantly clear that a fine-tuning series of rate cuts will not be adequate to offset a more material slowdown in the U.S. economy. In terms of the shape of the curve, we have now seen the three-month bill versus 10-year yield inverted since the 23rd of May. The Fed has focused on the duration of how long such an inversion occurs as being just as informative as the depth of such an inversion. And so the longer we see three-month bills versus 10s in negative territory, the more troubling this becomes for the Fed. The caveat here is that because of the debt ceiling issues, there has been a bit of dislocation in terms of front-end yields, i.e. higher bill rates at this particular moment as the traditional debt ceiling jitters start to take hold. For the time being, we continue to favor the twos, tens, re-steepening trade. It hasn't been met with a great deal of satisfaction thus far, and the unattractive carry dynamics make it that much more challenging to hold, particularly through long holiday weekends. So Ian, I've, I've got to hand it to you. I think you pretty much called the development of the global trade landscape a couple months ago. And what I'm referencing is the point you made that despite any trade truces, any even rollback in tariffs, the damage to the U.S.'s reputation as kind of the center of the free trade world has really already been done. And in order to reverse, it's not going to be a couple agreements here or there over the course of the few months. That's really going to be a multi-year story to recast the U.S. as a proponent of free trade once again. And I think this past week is a perfect example of that where despite the ostensibly positive headlines out of Osaka, it only took two days for more tariffs to be announced and for tenure yields to go right back to where they closed June. Well, Ben, as I always say, better to be lucky than good. Although my baseline call really was a function of my underlying cynicism about what can and cannot be done in terms of changing the direction of the overall global economy. And given how late we were in the cycle, the simple idea that anything positive could ultimately come out of a trade war seemed a bit misplaced to me at that point. And frankly, it still does. We learned that the administration was looking to oppose tariffs on an additional $4 billion of goods imported from the EU. That combined with the existing tariff potential gets us to 25 billion, give or take. While that is a much smaller number than the Chinese goods falling under the current tariff structure, it is nonetheless relevant. I'm more concerned of what it has already started to do to business confidence, and that undermining of business confidence will eventually start to curtail hiring, and then that's where it ultimately hits consumption and the real economy. Even with that background, however, the recent personal consumption figures were okay, as was the core PCE in May. As you point out, though, Ben, 
10-year yields still hovering toward the bottom end of the range. What does it take to get a definitive break in one direction or another? Does it come down to a shift in monetary policy? If that's the case, the Fed really does need to begin to recast its narrative because as it stands, the market is fully pricing in a 25 basis point rate cut by the end of July. The window for refining the Fed's message will be closing very quickly. And I think that's absolutely right about the window. At this point, because the market is fully priced in a cut for the Fed not to move in terms of the equivalent impact on front end rates and arguably financial conditions, this would somewhat equate to a massive surprise in terms of a rate hike. Certainly seems that there is very little, if any, potential appetite for that on the FOMC, though I would argue that one of the justifications for a 50 basis point cut at the end of this month, you could have imagined a scenario, and I'm sure we discussed this a couple weeks ago, where trade negotiations totally collapse, stocks start to fall off, and the Fed needs to respond much more aggressively. That certainly hasn't played out following Osaka. That doesn't imply that a 25 basis point cut isn't coming just that the justification for a larger move has been weakened. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating from our pre-NFP survey was the probability that respondents assigned to no change at the July meeting. Let's envision a world in which the Fed doesn't move. My baseline assumption is we would have a knee-jerk policy error trade in which the front end of the curve comes under pressure, yields back up, call it 7 to 10 basis points, not 25, not 50, but a reasonable sell-off. But the long end, presumably even in outright terms, outperforms as the curve flattens rather dramatically. The assumption there being the Fed didn't go now, and they're ultimately going to have to deliver a more significant series of rate cuts later. Do you think that flattening gets us to inversion? As with all good rates calls, it all depends on the departure point. If we go into the meeting at 30 or 35 basis points in two stands, that won't invert the curve. If we go into the meeting right against the cycle lows, call it nine basis points, and that's the scenario, then I think we could very easily see the two stands curve invert. So say the scenario where there's no cut in July, we go in with two stands at 30 basis points. Well, if twos back up 10 basis points, could you see a scenario where tens rally 20 basis points? Certainly not in the knee jerk. I think a 20 basis point rally in one day is way too aggressive. What'll be interesting is the follow on to that where 20 basis points over the course of a week is a much more possible scenario, though one would imagine to start to walk back from there anticipating larger cuts in September. Yeah, I totally agree, John. I think if in fact the Fed decides to leave rates unchanged in only a few weeks, I think the messaging that would come out of that meeting would need to pretty much explicitly say, we're going to cut in September and then probably again in December. So even if it would be a quote unquote hawkish surprise in July, I think the groundwork would need to be so explicitly laid for impending easing that the flattening reaction you might see might be a bit more muted than it otherwise would be. What do you make of the argument that there are still a few key data points between now and the actual FOMC meeting that could sway the committee one direction or another? We do have the inflation series, core CPI, PPI and the implications, obviously, from there for the PCE numbers, as well as retail sales. 
I mean, in general, I would always hope that the committee takes more of a dashboard approach and is less almost rules-based and looking at any individual print, right? You don't want that reactionary monetary policy that would just introduce a lot of noise. I think instead you could see some of the later data series kind of fine-tune either the scale of the cuts, some of the forward guidance, or the description of the economy going forward. As you mentioned before, the market is so confidently pricing cuts at the end of this month that to have a data point that didn't just massively miss expectations influence the committee seems a little far-fetched. Instead, I think it just helps refine the committee's guidance. We're certainly on the same page, but I do think that we're at a very unique moment in terms of what the economic data has been saying and how the trends have developed. I'm in complete agreement that a single data print isn't going to dictate how monetary policy plays out, but a lot of the primary indicators that we have been watching are somewhat cuspy, for lack of a better word. So I might suggest that a dismal print, either on the inflation front or the consumption front, or even a significant retracement in risk assets or sentiment shift elsewhere might move the proverbial needle to either confirm that 25 basis points, which the market has made very clear they're anticipating, but the Fed has been a bit more hesitant about, or send the assumption back the other way. And the issue in my mind is it comes down to timing. Do we get the incremental piece of data at a point where the Fed no longer can communicate their shifting expectations? Or does the Fed have the final say and the ability to refine its message at the last minute? To layer into that a little more, one thing I've been pondering is the market's priced for a 25 basis point cut, small chance of 50. If you then look at what market-based measures of inflation compensation, aka break-evens, are saying, they're dismal. I mean, five-year break-evens are under 160, 10-year break-evens are 170. That's not 2%. In some ways, what the market is saying is, yes, we think you're going to go 25 basis points, and that's not going to be sufficient to broadly push up inflationary pressure. If we receive additional readings that inflation continues to stay low in that context, maybe that opens the door to 50. Let's talk about Europe for a minute. There's been a lot of chatter that given how the economic data has played out in Europe, given the increasing headwinds on the global trade front and what that means, particularly for German exports and how that has flowed through to German consumption and the continent more broadly, that the ECB is going to need to step up and do something. From my perspective, I think the biggest risk is comparable to the risk facing the Fed that the ECB decides to stay the course a bit longer than the market would like them to. There's the risk of the policy error story, and that pushes 10-year German boon yields much further into negative territory. We're currently at, call it negative 35 basis points. I wouldn't be surprised to see new record lows established after the July ECB meeting. And I'll have an eye on that negative 45 to negative 47 range. Yeah. And I think another factor that's going to keep the ECB on hold a bit longer is Draghi's departure. His last day is Halloween. And also remember, there's something else going on in Europe around that time. You mean Brexit? Yes, I mean Brexit. That's spooky. Spooky indeed. And despite what some British leadership has said, I think we're all on the same page in saying a hard Brexit would in fact be economically detrimental. 
The one thing that I might add to that, Ben, is I would put that very much in the same category as the trade war. It's largely priced in. The market's expectations for a relatively positive outcome from Brexit have long since fallen to the wayside. And in fact, at this point, I think the biggest surprise potential is a positive outcome on the trade front and some type of amicable resolution with Brexit. Again, we've been trading Brexit for a very long time. We've been trading the trade war for a very long time. And we find ourselves in a situation where not only has the market moved past these risks, as evidenced by the response to G20, but increasingly monetary policy officials are coming to the realization that this ongoing uncertainty has really started to erode global confidence in the economy. To hammer that home, one data point I was looking at this week, global manufacturing tripped into contraction for the first time in seven, eight years since the depth of the euro crisis. Uh, This seems totally consistent with the idea that we're in a broader inflection point and a variety of disparate factors all seem to be coming together at some point in October. One of the things that really struck me from the recent manufacturing series was within the ISM in the U.S., we saw the lowest prices paid component since 2016. That comes at a particularly concerning time for the Fed. As we think about how long inflation expectations can be anchored given the persistent lowflation and underperformance on the pricing pressure front. Bringing it back to the treasury market and this week particularly, we do get threes, tens, and thirties, the second reopening of May's new issue. And looking at the stat from June supply, something really interesting came up and what has been a theme so far of this year that I think I've spoken far too much about is that the strength in auctions have really been a story of domestic investment funds. And what we saw in June is that in threes, tens, and thirties, domestic investment funds took the largest share that they have of all three of those on record. And given the fact that this all happened while yields kept falling and kept falling and kept falling, what that suggests to me is regardless of the yield level, the economic outlook and the monetary policy outlook have changed to such an extent that strong bids are going to come in pretty much regardless of where yields have moved. The other thing that that does is it confirms this dynamic that we saw play out in 2018. Recall last year's big question was, well, what happens when foreign sponsorship for treasuries dries up? That's exactly what we saw. We saw a reduction in the amount of foreign awards at auction. The surprise wasn't that we saw domestic investors step up and start taking down an increasing share of supply, but rather the outright levels at which they were willing to come in and buy treasuries. And the experience of 2019 has simply reiterated that point and really cemented this notion that the front end of the curve trades off of monetary policy expectations, sevens, tens, and thirties are simply a function of the global inflation and growth outlook. I'm also curious how long that dynamic should be expected to play out. One way to think about currency hedging costs, especially for, say, Japanese investors, is that it's a function of the shape of the curve, a very flat curve. It's relatively punitive to currency hedge. As we continue to approach the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, it therefore follows that currency hedging costs reduce and you could see some increased demand in the back end. What's comforting is that domestic investment funds were more than able to fill the demand gap even with 
high currency hedging costs for foreign investors. As the curve re-steepens, you're going to kind of get the best of both worlds for the treasury market. And that actually fits extremely well with some of the anecdotes that we've been hearing and what we've seen flow through in some of the data, particularly out of Japan. At the beginning of the second quarter, we heard a great deal about Japanese life insurers buying unhedged further out the curve. Now we have the confirmation via the MOF data that there actually has been a reasonable amount of flow into U.S. Treasuries from the region. And given that swapping Treasury yields back to yen in this current environment actually results in a negative yield, it's pretty safe to say that a lot of those flows, at least at this point, have been occurring on an unhedged basis. Wait a minute. I'm happy you brought that up, Ben. I've been waiting almost three weeks to talk about the FOMC's minutes. In general, I would say that there are two core things to be looking for next Wednesday. The first is obviously the discussion around the committee's reaction function at this moment. How are they thinking about cuts with unemployment this low, risk asset prices this high? I'd expect confirmation that inflation expectations are a key driver of it, as well as global headwinds. That's all fine and good. Everyone will be attentive to the conversation and discussion. Of course, that information, as always, will be a bit stale. It came before the G20, so it has to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. In the plumbing, though, there might be a more interesting conversation about the possibility of a repo facility. Recall that Powell had indicated a desire to study this in a bit more detail. And in essence, what the facility would do is the Fed would absorb some of the excess collateral in the Treasury market and be able to introduce reserves as needed. The question in our mind has always been a little bit more on the structure of this. What rate would it be? Who exactly would be allowed in? Would the amount be capped? Kind of detail stuff like that, but are actually quite consequential for how to think about the impact of this facility if it does happen. And therefore, the minutes could be a nice opportunity to communicate to the market, hey, here's what we're currently thinking. This is what members thought about this structure. Here's some conversation about timing, dot, dot, dot. I think it might also be interesting to hear how the Fed is willing to frame the first dissent that we've had at a vote in a very long time. We know that Bullard dissented in favor of an earlier rate cut, but it will be interesting to see how other members might have been closer to that opinion or further away than the collective statement suggests. And outside of the minutes, I would say the week's biggest event would be someone's birthday on Friday. John, any big plans for your impending midlife crisis? You know, I've been debating starting a markets podcast. Don't worry. It's all John Hill from here. In the week ahead, there's a great deal of incoming information, but on the top of our list is the semi-annual congressional testimony from Powell. He speaks in front of both the House and the Senate, and while historically some of the questions might take the chair a bit far afield from the immediate implementation of monetary policy, we'll nonetheless be looking for any hints or insight as to the current leaning, whether we should anticipate a 25 basis point rate cut at the end of July, a delay of any such decision, or for the committee to act more aggressively. Our baseline scenario remains a 25 basis point rate cut at the end of this month. While there's certainly a chance that the Fed delays making a decision on whether or not to commence an easing campaign at the end of July, 
We continue to think if they avoid doing anything preemptively, they'll simply have to do more later in the cycle. For context, taking a look at the last three easing cycles, they have averaged 2.3 years in length with 575 basis points in average rate cuts. However, given that the departure point for this cycle is 225 basis points, we would anticipate that should the Fed need to catch up to avoid a more material slowdown, we suspect that if the Fed should need to play catch up to avoid a recession, that the window for easing would be much shorter. We also see the minutes from the June FOMC meeting, and one of the biggest open questions from our perspective is whether or not anyone else on the committee was interested in joining Bullard the dissenter in his crusade to lower policy rates. The two other major considerations in the week ahead are the inflation series, as well as this week's supply. We'll be watching core CPI with a special focus on the owner's equivalent written component. Shelter, as we've been on about for quite some time, has been the only consistent pillar within the core inflation series that has contributed and frankly kept core inflation from drifting lower than it already has. With the delayed impact of the turn in the housing market becoming increasingly relevant in the second half of this year, we're more concerned that volatility in the shelter series will begin flowing through to the data. Watch this space, as they say. In terms of the upcoming auctions, we have threes, tens, and thirties. Tens and thirties are second reopenings, which is a fact unto itself that doesn't necessarily indicate that they should meet strong or weaker receptions. However, given where we are in the cycle and what we are seeing in the rest of the global sovereign debt market, i.e. negative yields and a lot of comparable benchmarks, we struggle to imagine that 10s and 30s won't see a reasonably solid takedown. The three-year will obviously be a function of any fluctuating monetary policy expectations, but given the amount of demand for the relatively higher yielding front end of the curve compared to what we're seeing further out, reserve managers and domestic players alike will surely take advantage of the liquidity provided by supply. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. While we are tempted to conclude with the time-tested market adage that if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense, the fact of the matter is that we're still struggling to make sense. I see what you did there. But do you? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.